This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. Today we look ahead to the 2013 term of the Supreme Court. As always, the court will meet first on the first Monday of October, this year, October 7th. Our lawyers today are Glenn Smith from the California Western School of Law, an expert on constitutional law, and Stan Panikowski, an attorney with DLA Piper, in San Diego and a former law clerk to Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Before we look at the term ahead, we want to finish looking at the term that concluded in June. We discussed several of those cases in a recent podcast, which is available at lawreview.podbean.com, but we want to finish that uh, discussion. So Glenn Smith, we didn't have a chance to talk about voting rights uh, and the Supreme Court last term. What did the court decide? Uh, it was a major decision, highly controversial, and basically um, the, the court decided that uh, the formula that Congress used to identify which jurisdictions would have to pre-clear their changes. What that means is uh, certain jurisdictions that had a history of voting discrimination based on race, uh, mainly in the South, but not always, um, if they if they made any change, large or small, in their election procedures that might affect minority voting, they had to clear it with the Justice Department. Meaning they had to get prior approval. Prior approval. So the, the, the court did not make any changes in the parts of the Voting Rights Act that allow people to bring lawsuits after changes in the law have been made. But, but uh, the preclearance procedure is, is obviously very important because if you can nip something that's illegal in the bud uh, and not require somebody to bring an affirmative lawsuit, that, that means much more compliance. Why were only some states selected for preclearance requirements? Well, uh, partly it's a political compromise of Congress when it originally did it, partly because these are the ways that uh, th there were certain outlying state and jur local jurisdictions that um, Congress wanted to make sure that it, it, uh, um, it, it that their changes would have to be pre-cleared. I suppose that they thought that if you had a nationwide pre-clearance process, that would be administratively difficult and probably politically difficult. So some states go through it, some don't. Those states were selected in reality in what, 1964? Right, right. And, and, and given, again, the realities of congressional action, the, uh, the formula had been looked at again but, and tweaked some, but not really changed. And it kind of, what it had going for it was longevity and the fact that originally it was a good predictor of which jurisdictions caused special concerns and needed the preclearance. But uh, as, as was argued and even admitted by the defenders of the, the formula, increasingly and with some changes, um, you could say that certain jurisdictions that were caught in the formula shouldn't be, and then others that escaped the formula were as bad or worse. There was a procedure by which a jurisdiction could formally opt out or get out of, get released from preclearance requirements, but uh, that wasn't good enough for some of, the, some of the jurisdictions that brought a lawsuit and succeeded in convincing the court by a, a five to four vote, a pretty, pretty ideologically divided conservative liberal vote um, that the formula was unconstitutional. So that means that that part of the law that requires preclearance was declared unconstitutional. Yes. On what basis? Uh, on the basis that uh, that it was um, singling out, that it violated states' rights to be singled out on this basis when the formula was so um, arbitrary or irrational, basically. And and that you also mentioned it leaves intact the other part, the other sections of the law that allow 
the Justice Department or individuals, I Correct. think, Although to, the, to bring lawsuits. Right. Although, of course, it takes money and there's a, yeah. a burden of proof and, and all that. Uh, and, of course, what the court also said, again, being somewhat naive, uh, was that Congress, is, they, all they said is the, the formula Congress used and had perpetuated was, was unconstitutional, but that doesn't preclude Congress from revising the formula. But of course, anyone is familiar with the current dynamics uh, of Congress. It's really hard to imagine that Congress could could possibly do that. And in fact, that's Although why they this left this. Was, it was just passed recently, overwhelmingly. Overwhelmingly, yes, yes. And in so, fact, that's so. Why? The, I mean, why would it be so impossible? Because it would require a new formula. Yes, yes. Yeah. Everybody, everybody was willing to hold their nose and yeah. vote for the formula that was there. But if you're talking about a formula which would require members of Congress to, you know, designate their jurisdiction as a, a, a worrisome the target, you know, a target yeah. Yeah. Uh, newly, or to come up with some kind of formula, inevitably, it was one of those situations where it was like, uh, as I think Justice Breyer put it very well, this formula may not have a lot going for it, but it worked, and it was what could pass, and therefore it ought to be left. So is, is this a big deal? I mean, I've, I've heard people claim both. Yes. It's a big deal, it's and it's good. a pretty small deal. I think it's a moderate deal. I don't think it's the end of, end of the world, uh, partly because I think a lot of the, the uh, you know, a lot of what was allowed under preclearance, you know, it, it wasn't that big a, big a burden. Uh, but certainly, um, when you combine it with what we've seen over the last couple of years, which is an effort to kind of do voter voter rights dilutions and people to, and politicians to play games with, trying to alter who can vote and and try to, yeah, I I, I think legitimately we can be concerned that some jurisdictions will uh, try freed newly freed of this requirement to to justify their rules to the Justice Department will play games and that it'll be harder to stop them. And even if they're stopped in lawsuits, it'll be years after the practice. So I think it's a, I think it's moderate importance. I don't think it's the end of the world, but it's uh, um, at least uh, a major shift and, and, and um, makes voting rights harder to, to enforce and feel positive about. I also think that this case dovetails with some of the larger dynamics on affirmative action. And even though the, the legal issues are different in those cases, I think that we see the quote unquote conservative uh, members of the court wanting to get past race conscious laws for any purpose. Um, I think back to Justice O'Connor's comments in one of the affirmative action decisions from last decade, talking about there being a sunset provision in affirmative action and, and hoping and thinking that, you know, a quarter century from that point, we'll be done with all this. Well, there are members of the court who, who think that a quarter century is too long to wait. We should be done with it now. And I think that that battle played out in the voting rights case. And we, we saw it play out some in affirmative action last term. We'll probably see it play out more in affirmative action this term. And I know that a lot of people had fun criticizing Justice Scalia for being activists and overriding Congress's prerogatives in the voting rights case, while all of a sudden being the, the staunch defender of the legis federal legislative process in the DOMA case. And you know, people can say what they want. I think people like to 
uh, poke fun at Justice Scalia because he promotes himself as having a consistent jurisprudence um, because his opinions can be somewhat scathing. Um, people like to turn the tables on him. And, and also, you know, let's face it, the commentators tend to be on average more liberal than your average American. So they'll tend to go after Justice Scalia. But whenever you think Justice Scalia is being inconsistent in a case where he's in the majority on one and the dissent on, on another, you have to ask yourself, well, aren't the people who opposed him in both <laughs> cases being inconsistent too? And isn't it Justice Kennedy, you know, the fabled swing vote, isn't he the only one who's really being consistent here? <laughs> and uh, so let me ask you, since you raised Justice Scalia and some of the dissents, do you think that dissents are getting just generally nastier? I mean, not all of them, but taking the the sense of the term as a whole, when you read them, there isn't one or two cases in which you kind of get bombs lobbed at the other side. Right. It would be interesting to try to compile a nastiness yeah. index yes. and see yes. how it's yeah. changed over they time. They have a laughter index. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and I know that the, the justices have also become more outspoken in academic and media fora, um, something that really would be unheard of. And I think that people would have been shocked at in, in the past. And you're you're starting to hear some of, some of the passion boiling over in those talks. And I, I don't have a sense as to whether that's contributed to greater stridency in the opinions and especially the dissents. I, I know um, there are some people who think that Justice Kagan is going to emerge as the you know, happy, smiley, but intellectually um, dominating you know, Scalia of the left. Um, and that the combination of her and Chief Justice Roberts moderate approach um, will bring a, a greater degree of, and I don't want to suggest that the, the court's opinions have become uncivil, but you know, a, a greater degree of civility and courtesy to the discourse, even when they disagree sharply. Before we leave the term, I, I want to ask you one last thing about intellectual property cases that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It was a huge number of patent, copyright, yes. just intellectual property cases last term. Was so, there any common theme? I think there, there was a common theme, and it's interesting because it stands somewhat in contrast to the broader theme in the business cases. Um, the first theme in the IP cases is that the Supreme Court has become much more active in that area, um, perhaps somewhat to the chagrin of the Federal Circuit. I heard um, someone say at a Federal Circuit Bar Association conference before that when the Supreme Court gets involved in patent law, it's like amateur night at the karaoke. Um, and and I, I saw it get some vigorous laughs from some unnamed um, judges of of a certain lower court in the audience. Um, and the other theme in these cases that is that the court seems to be generally curtailing the scope of patent rights and, and curtailing the um, power of a patent right even when it's successfully enforced. And on the one hand, that seems like it's inconsistent with the broader pro-business pattern of the court's decisions, but it's not so easy in patent cases yeah. to characterize them as pro-business or anti-business. It depends on what your view is of that trade-off and bargain between giving incentives for innovation and providing access to ideas. And I think the court has probably made at least an implicit policy judgment that they think that business interests and the economy are better served by reining in 
patent rights and, and the power of remedies and in patent cases, um, ra rather than thinking that we need to tilt the scales more toward protecting innovation. And, and it, the, the Supreme Court must be taking these course, cases because it thinks the Federal Circuit and the Patent Office are getting a little too uh, patent happy, as granting patents too often and too broadly. Yes, I think that given all the other issues competing for their attention, it's fair to say that if they were content with the way things were being done there, they would probably leave well enough alone. Well, it may be a, a moment to switch to the, the coming term uh, because uh, you mentioned the, the cases they get. So I wanted to start the, the talking about the coming term because we're talking about a few cases that to, to watch for. But I wanted to take a minute to say, so how does the court get to hear these cases? Is there a random drawing and they get... So people file cert petitions to try to get the court's discretionary review. I mean, th this is setting aside um, the few cases that come up through the courts. But almost all of them, you're saying almost all of the court chooses Exactly. Itself. It's almost entirely discretionary. We're talking roughly 8,000 cert petitions per year with less than 80 of them being granted. So we're talking about a 1% grant rate, which you, you then have to further subdivide into paid petitions and IFP in form of pauperous petitions. The, the rate for paid petitions is more along the lines of 3%, whereas with IFPs, you're, you're talking well yeah. south of, of 1%. And those are generally from um, criminal Pr defendants and and people who have a strong incentive to try to bring their case to, to, to get their particular sentence overturned and so may not be doing the kind of screening of cases that the, the paid petitioners are. Exactly. The most famous IFP case of all time, Gideon <laughs> v. Wainwright. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and so um, the court's docket is almost entirely discretionary. It's about half the size of what it was a couple of decades ago. And, and then in, in a lot of those cases, um, the court is further limiting the reach of federal judicial power. I think that's that's a, a broad theme we've seen the past few years. And I think there are a number of cases this term which set the table for the court to do the same. So a lot of these cases involve you know, who can sue in what court under what law. And with the broad trend being toward fewer people being able to bring fewer claims in federal court under federal law, the court is also in that way further shrinking its power. So you know, a, a broad theme, in, in a sense, can be the incredible shrinking court, both through the fact that most of its docket is discretionary to begin with, it accepts fewer cases than before, generally issues narrower decisions and more fragmented decisions than it used to. And then a lot of those decisions are designed to make sure that fewer cases get decided by the federal courts, including itself. On Law Review today, we're talking with Glenn Smith, a constitutional law faculty member at California Western, and attorney Stan Panikowski. Uh, Glenn, so what cases do you think will be really interesting this term? Uh, well, there's, there's one involving the recess appointments from the Obama administration to the National Labor Relations Board, which is, although it's about this administration and these particular appointments, uh, modern presidents of all political stripes have increasingly uh, tried to use recess appointments, uh, which which allows uh, when the Senate stands in the way of not nominating or not confirming a nominee, uh, and the Senate goes on recess, the president can 
appoint someone, they, the appointment is good for until the end of the next congressional session. So depending on the timing, you could end up appointing someone the Senate is balking at, at confirming for a year, year and a half. And this is for a position that the Constitution or law requires that there be Senate confirmation. Exactly. And, and, and it, it's it sounds largely, like it's not just incidental, but sometimes purposely to get around the Senate confirmation. Uh, increasingly, it is that. I mean, the, and this is one of those fascinating things, which is, does, is what matters, and I think it will depend on the justice. The original view of this, it's pretty clear the framers wrote this provision back in 1789 at a time when Congress was in session for very short amounts of time and had really long recesses. And they recognized that if a vacancy arose, you needed a way other than confirmation rather than leave an important federal office vacant. Uh, but as you say, increasingly we now have a, a year-round Congress which takes recesses and recess appointments have been used by modern presidents largely to get around confirmation uh, problems for so nominees. So what's, what, what's the, the, the legal issue in this case? Well, what's there's three legal oh, issues in this yeah. case. Uh, okay. It's, fa you know, I mean, how much time do you have? No, it's, it's uh, <laughs> the first question is uh, whether, whether the recess appointments can only be done in between the two big recesses in a, in a, congress a two-year congressional term. You know, there's always like the end of one session of Congress and the beginning of the next and a recess of about a, a, a month, month and a half. So uh, the D.C. Circuit held, three judges, um, all the judges said that, no, the, the, you can only make so-called intersession appointments, appointments uh, during, recess appointments during the big break, not, not during a regular term of Congress when the Senate maybe goes on Easter break or July 4th How break or whatever. recesses for the night? Well, there's uh, actually you're anticipating the third so issue, which is okay. uh, increasingly so presidents have ex ex expanded this, but the Senate to try to deal with it has sort of what they call pro forma sessions, where if, these look pretty funny if you see them on C-SPAN, but one member of the Senate has to come back. I guess this person draws the short straw, and they uh, gavel in the Senate for two seconds and then adjourn it for another three days. And the theory is this keeps this insulates the Senate from recess appointments. So that's the Why? third issue. Why, Why would that? Well, because of another provision that says that uh, the Senate can't recess for more than three days without the permission of the other House. And, and well, so no, but but the, 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 well, why would that be a recess? Uh, why would that not? I'm sorry. Why would that not be a recess? If you uh, recess because in the theory, night? they're in session. Oh, I see. OK. Although they okay. they say they can't they're in session, but they can't take any business. I so, see. of course, the administration is arguing that it's not really a recess. Right. And, and then, uh, as if that's not enough, there's a question of can you use, if you can do recess appointments anytime during a congressional term, does it have to be, does the vacancy for which you're replacing someone have to also arise during the recess? Oh, uh, so anyway, it's a so, fe it's a so, festival of. So uh, that would stop the the business of that, someone's not moving. Right. I can't get uh, John uh, Bolton as right. as UN ambassador by the Senate. Uh, they're balking on him, so it's been vacant for a while. But I'll seize on the fact that it's still vacant during this recess, and I'll make the appointment. And you have to wonder who GOP senatorial presidential hopefuls are really rooting for. <laughs> yes, yes, right. Who, right. who did Ted Cruz and Rand Paul well, really want to win here? And, and the implications are potentially very broad yes. because, as, as um, Glenn said, it, it would not only affect the power of all presidents, it would affect the validity of appointments to other agencies and also affect the validity of decisions that were rendered by agencies with 
recess appointees. So we're, we're talking about potentially a fairly broad swath of administrative decisions across numerous agencies being yeah. undone with the stroke of a well, pen. Well, do you guys have a prediction? Uh, actually, I think this is one that's pretty easy to predict. Three circuit courts have gone against the president's position, and I think that's the handwriting on the wall. I would predict that they will do that. I don't. They're going to certainly balk at requiring the NLRB and every you know all of us to go back for 150 years and rethink right. every decision made by a recess appointee. It'll be one of these saying, "Well, it wasn't done properly, but uh, henceforth." Let's have no more of this. In, in some, right. in, in the, the retroactivity is something the Supreme Court deals with, even yes. in criminal, constitutional criminal cases. And in fact, it's often a, a club that the, uh, the the government can use to try to scare the court and say, "Look, if you right. if you don't if you go this way, you're facing this huge issue." And certainly, the the administration's brief is interesting. They've of course got all kinds of arguments on framers' intent and all that good stuff. But really, the basic two themes in their recently filed brief are. Uh, this could require a, undo a lot of decisions and create all kinds of chaos. So don't go there. And secondly, uh, in in an appendix, they basically show that there have been hundreds of recess appointments for the executive branch and occasionally for the judicial branch over 150 years. And they're basically saying the message: whatever the original understanding, we have long accepted the idea that that right. this is valid. So it's a classic case, but really ultimately between. Do we go with the original intent of the framers or the evolving understanding and it, all it, kinds of fun stuff? Is there a disagreement among the circuits? Three, the three most recent decisions have all been against the present. There is an older, several years older, 11th Circuit opinion that, that goes the other way. Okay. Well, uh, that, that will be an interest and important because— uh, and, and and predictably, it'll be it'll the media will, or at least the the non-professional Supreme Court savvy media will present this as a loss for Obama or a gain for the right. Senate. But a, but a stance, stance says, it, yeah, it's really the institutional it's process, presidency. It's a process that's going to cut both against both absolutely. parties or for both parties, depending on the circumstances. Right. Stand as as a case struck you of of interest. Um, there are two cases. One of them is similar to the NLRB case in the sense that it, it sounds very narrow at first, but it has potentially very broad implications. And that's the Mount Holly case, which asks the question whether the Fair Housing Act permits disparate impact claims. So a disparate impact claim is one where you have a, a law or regulation that's facially neutral, but has a disproportionately disadvantageous impact on one class over another. Um, and here the issue is is race. And it's a question of statutory interpretation, but depending on which way the question comes out, there are a lot of other statutes um, administered by a lot of other federal agencies that are similarly worded. For example, the um, Equal Credit Opportunity Act has language in it similar to the FHA. And, and, and the basic question, not I don't want to oversimplify it too much, but the basic question is whether you have to have language in the statute that specifically talks about effects in order to say that the statute prohibits disparate impact discrimination as opposed to just intentional discrimination. Now, there's a possibility that the case is going to go away. Um, this issue has gone away in prior cases based on a settlement, and there are media reports um, that 
the parties may be close to a settlement here, which is you know yet another reason why sometimes the Supreme Court doesn't have as big an impact um, as it wants to, because even when it decides to take a case, sometimes the parties can make it go away. But um, if it does go forward, um, it, it'll it'll be pretty broad. And the other case that's really caught my attention is Bond versus the United States about the scope of Congress's power to implement legislation using its treaty power. And the basic question is, does federalism impose a constraint on Congress's legislative powers under the treaty power? Can Congress go ahead and enter into an international treaty that covers an area that is traditionally the domain of the states and is reserved to the states under the 10th Amendment and then use that treaty as a basis to enact implementing legislation that would then put down a federal marker in an area that would otherwise be purely a state domain. Is it fair to say that the question there is essentially can can the federal government enter into a treaty with other countries that expands its authority at the expense of the states? Yes, within the domestic arena. And yeah. there's, there's been some debate as to whether um, whether it makes a difference as to whether the treaty is self-executing as opposed to requiring implementing legislation. I, you know, I think that that's a little bit of form over substance, yeah. but it, um, the the facts from which this arises are potentially the you know, one of the most salacious cases to come before the Supreme Court. Um, a, a man had an affair and his wife stole the mail of the woman with whom he was having the affair and also put poison in the muffler of her car. Um, and then she was prosecuted federally under um, a federal act that implements an international treaty preventing the use of chemical weapons. Um, <laughs> and and you can you can see that you know, yeah. this that, that's probably not going to happen often. And I think that you know, one <laughs> one of the reasons why um, federal power might lose in the case is because um, it seems that that particular prosecution is very very far afield from any legitimate concerns in international treaties. But the hypotheticals in this case um, are going to be very interesting and very challenging. As you can think of a lot of other areas, such as for example the death penalty. Um, that are, you know, setting aside any Eighth Amendment issues reserved to the state's domain. But you could see the U.S. entering into a human rights treaty where countries agree um, that the death penalty violates international law and should be abolished. What, were, what would happen if Congress were then to turn around and pass a law implementing it that abolished the death penalty? in all states. And there are a whole host of other um, examples, you know, and anything related to states' regulation of health, you know, welfare and safety, where it would be an easy call to say an ordinary congressional law would be unconstitutional um, as you know, exceeding Congress's enumerated powers, violating the 10th Amendment. But does it completely change the equation if Congress does the exact same thing, but routes that legislation through its treaty power? It's, it's vaguely reminiscent, by the way, of the Obamacare controversy, where, again, it, it's another example of the court being concerned about federal power versus state power, but it sort of depends on, you know, we had the decision that you couldn't have an individual mandate under the commerce power of Congress, but you could under the taxing power. It's kind of like, okay, maybe Congress couldn't do these things directly, but can it use the treaty power to empower, you know, to empower itself? And so I think this, these are cases that, for the last couple of decades, this court has taken seriously and, and sometimes uses, as you say, as a way to put, put down a marker saying you can't go this far, federal right. government. 
So any other cases that we should look out for? Uh, the one I, there's one that I'm looking uh, at because I follow uh, separation of, uh, I'm sorry, no, um, sorry, there's, there's one I'm looking at uh, a lot, an area uh, of, um, of separation of church and state. And uh, this is an area where uh, in terms of government symbolically associating it with itself with religion, uh, the court has been excruciatingly unable to decide on a certain standard or a certain approach. So what's an example? Um, for example, um, prayers at graduation, uh, voluntary prayers said, said by someone at graduation, or the Ten Commandments, uh, a monument about the Ten Commandments on the Texas Capitol is constitutional, but not if it's on the courthouse wall in Kentucky. And there's these kind of... so what. The, these kind of split results are, are, are a function of the fact that there are three or four different approaches, some more separation of church and state, some less separationist, which contend for majorities and get majorities and don't. And often Justice O'Connor and sometimes Justice Kennedy and Justice Breyer are sort of have been swing voters to produce that result. Well, the court hasn't had one of those in a long time and hasn't really had one of those where, for example, Justice Alito and the, the newer justices have had to sort of show their cards. Where are they on the spectrum of possible approaches? Justice Alito might well be the fifth critical vote to decide, are we going to go more on the separation of power side? Uh, sorry, I keep saying separation. Separation of church and state side, or the church and, and state can interact more and, and be more associated. Anyway. That's all context Yeah. to fast forward to a case called Town of Greece, uh, which is named after this, this town in upstate New York, which um, for years had a practice of opening its city council meetings with a, a, a prayer said by a local member of the religious community who was, uh, they sort of invited to come. And so it wasn't a government, offic official government prayer, but it turned out that because the town of Greece, the, the religious community is almost completely Christian, that 117 out of 121 of the prayers were said by Christian ministers. And um, uh, some of them were very, very consciously Christian. They would pray on behalf of all assembled uh, to, to live the life of Christ, etc. And so the question is, does this violate the Establishment Clause because it, the town didn't do enough to avoid a sense that it was endorsing Christianity? Did, should the town have been more conscious of what a reasonable observer would think this meant? And one thing, uh, the endorsement theory, uh, again, it's interesting to have Stan here, was created by Justice O'Connor and, and perfected by her. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about will Justice Alito sort of stepping into her slot, at least on the court, will he be anywhere near as 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 receptive to that kind of an argument, or will he uh, align himself with four people on the court that are generally more forgiving of mixing of church and state? And so, it could be decided on very narrow facts. You know, 121, you know, 117 <laughs> out of 121. Are the stone tablets under a palm tree, <laughs> yes, or are they exactly. next to? <laughs> and so it could be just that, but it also could be the opportunity for, uh, again, to find out where the gravity center of gravity is on this court, court about church-state issues. Well, that will be a, uh, it will be a good case to follow, and, and we will do that. We're going to ask you both to come back and talk about 
these cases as they're decided. I'm sorry that we're out of time because there are a thousand other questions, but I cannot stop without uh, mentioning my favorite uh, case from what I've seen. I'm not sure it's my favorite, but the, it's intriguing. But, but it's a, it is intriguing because I get on airplanes once in a while. It's a frequent flyer case in which uh, Northwest Airlines, now Delta, uh, tossed a very frequent flyer, platinum kind of flyer, off their frequent flyer uh, uh, list, and he lost, I think, his miles as well as his status. Uh, he was a rabbi, uh, so they were particularly uh, uh, unhappy with, with him for some reason. There's some dispute about that. It, either that he filed a lot of complaints uh, or that he was trying to intentionally book overbook flights so he could get the compensation. In any event, whatever it was, he filed suit against them and it was uh, dismissed under the, the theory that the Airline Deregulation Act uh, re prohibits sta states from passing laws that address price, route, or service uh, of air carriers. And so the question is, is a frequent flyer uh, program related to price, route, or service of the airlines. So it's a kind of, it's a preemption case and a statutory interpretation case. So I'll follow that very closely uh, <laughs> and report on that. Yeah, forget about the, the First Amendment, yeah. equal protection. Right, right. What do Americans really care about? Their frequent flyer miles. Well, it is the most frequent, uh, I think the biggest currency in the world is yeah, frequent probably, flyer right, miles. Probably. Yeah. Well, the other thing I wanted to say, just it's easy to follow what the Supreme Court is doing. And uh, for, for anyone, it's free. The Supreme Court has a really good uh, website, for one thing. So going on the Supreme is supremecourt.gov uh, is the, their website. You can listen to their oral arguments. They post them every Friday. And it's kind of fun to listen to those. And of course, as decisions are released, they're, they're released on that website almost immediately. So it's a great way to, to follow the Supreme Court. There's a, for insiders, there's a, a website, SCOTUS blog for Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS, S-C-O-T-U-S blog.com. It's got tons of data and information. It's kind of uh, fun to follow. So it's easy to do that. Well, thank you, uh, Glenn Smith and Stan Panikowski, for preparing us for the uh, term just ahead. We do look forward to uh, coming back to talk about the outcome of these and other cases. Thank you for being on Law Review. Thanks also to our producers, Sarah Kagi, along with Katrina Julian, Megan Wright, and Jinhee Park. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. We enjoy hearing from you, so you're welcome to send us a message via lawreview.podbean.com. Until next time, this is Steve Smith, and the Law Review stands adjourned.